People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. Welcome to our um, to our show for today. We've got a full show. We've got um, some reviews, some giveaways. We're going to mention a whole lot of books. And then the second half of the show, we're going to be speaking to British author Paul Mendelssohn, who is currently in Cape Town. And uh, we're going to be talking about his new book, Apostle Lodge. He's the author of three previous books in a crime series set in Cape Town, The History of Blood, The Serpentine Road, The First Rule of Survival. His fourth book, Apostle Lodge, is now available in the shops and uh, a crime thriller writer Lee Child, well, thriller writer Lee Child has called his work excellent. So we'll have Paul Mendelssohn on the show talking about Cape Town, Britain, uh, his book, Apostle Lodge, his characters in the book. So listen out for that from half past 11 onwards. What we're going to start off with is with a giveaway. I've got two books by the same author uh, to give away. The first one we'll give away is I'll Take the Sunny Side. The author is Gordon Forbes. Gordon Forbes was born in 1934 on a farm near Burgersdorp in the Eastern Cape. He grew up playing tennis with his siblings and became one of South Africa's most consistent post-war champions, winning a total of 10 national titles. He played for South Africa in Davis Cup competitions, and he and his great friend Abe Siegel became one of the world's best doubles combinations. Together they won the British hard courts twice and reached the finals of the French championships and the semi-finals of Wimbledon. I'll Take the Sunny Side is the third installment of Forbes's writers and critically acclaimed memoir, and we also have a previous memoir to give away a previous uh, a previous installment that's called A Handful of Summers. So we'll start off with, let's start off with The Handful of Summers. From beginnings on a gravel court on a farm in rural South Africa, Gordon Forbes went on to travel the world with his longtime tennis partner Abe Siegel during the late 1950s and the early 1960s, the glory days of Fred Perry, Roy Emerson and Virginia Wade. In this delightful insider's account of tennis on the international circuit, Forbes looks back with laughter at his tennis playing years through a varied, successful and often outrageous career on the world's courts. This newly published edition of A Handful of Summers brings back a cult classic, revealing an era populated by the most colourful tennis players of all time. More about the hilarious escapades of players than the game itself. The book begins with a short series of uh, vignettes from Forbes's childhood on an Eastern Cape farm, then takes the reader on a tennis tour into locker rooms and restaurants, narrow streets and small hotels, and onwards to the lawns of Wimbledon and the caramel-coloured clays of Roland Gora. This is the book A Handful of Summers, Gordon Forbes, a famous South African tennis player, and it also has a forward by Peter Ustinov. And so we're going to be giving this book away first, because it's the earlier installment. It was first published in 1978, and it's been republished this year. And then the second book that we're giving away, it's also it's the third installment in I'll Take the Sunny Side. Uh, which is a memoir about many things. We look at tennis, friendship, storytelling, and growing older. Gordon Forbes, the acclaimed author, has joined seven friends for the seniors' lunch in the Rainbow Room at the country club for several years. They are a group of learned men, writers, scholars, and ex-editors, and this book arises from the meandering conversations. You might know some of the table. James, the born humorist, Mark, the headmaster, Tim and Charles, the historians, two Peters who have edited newspapers, Richard, an author and editor, and Gordon, the tennis player. Join them as they debate politics, books, and sports in particular. Is television affecting the antics of modern sportsmen? How many oysters is enough to make a difference? What has happened to tennis? Has the nobility of the game gone for good? 
This is I'll Take the Sunny Side by Gordon Forbes. We're giving both books away. So all you have to do is WhatsApp or SMS us. And people, don't be shy. All you have to do is send in a WhatsApp or an SMS and you will win one of these two wonderful South African tennis and, uh, I don't know, memoir books. The SMS number is 34519 and the WhatsApp number is 0618951019. Give us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading and you can win for yourself a copy of these two books, A Handful of Summers by Gordon Forbes or I'll Take the Sunny Side also by Gordon Forbes. Both books are published by the local publisher, Bookstorm. It's a Johannesburg-based publishing house, Bookstorm, and they are publishing Gordon Forbes's memoirs. Now, the next book that we're going to look at, also the South African, Southern African um, theme, is a book that has been critically rev- uh, acclaimed around the world, but it really is a Southern African book. It's called Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushman. The author, James Sussman, is an anthropologist specializing in the political economy of Southern Africa, where he has lived and worked with every major Bushman group. Sussman was awarded a Smuts Commonwealth Fellowship in African Studies at Cambridge University and led the De Beers Group's award-winning sustainability and public affairs initiatives. Recently, he found Anthropos, a think tank that applies anthropological methods to solving contemporary social and economic problems. The book is published by Bloomsbury. It's called Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushman. It's a vibrant portrait of the original affluent society. And that's in quotation marks because it's not what we think of as affluent. The original affluent society is the Bushman of Southern Africa. And James Sussman has spent the last 25 years documenting the Bushman's encounter with modernity. This is Affluence Without Abundance. We'll return to it straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People in the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've got a competition on at the moment. If you want to win a copy of Gordon Forbes's either I'll Take the Sunny Side or a Handful of Summers, WhatsApp or SMS us, WhatsApp number 061-895-1019, SMS 34519. Gordon Forbes is one of South Africa's most famous tennis players, but we're going back in time to the 1950s and 60s for a handful of summers. And I'll take the sunny side. It's uh, the third installment of his memoirs. And then the second book that we are looking at right now is called Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushman by anthropologist James Sussman. If the success of a civilization is measured by its endurance over time, then the Bushmen of the Kalahari are by far the most successful in human history. A hunting and gathering people who made a good living by working only as much as needed to exist in harmony with their hostile desert environment. The Bushmen have lived in southern Africa for thousands of years. In Affluence Without Abundance, anthropologist James Sussman asks whether understanding how hunter-gatherers like the Bushmen found contentment by having few needs easily met might help us address some of the environmental and economic challenges we face today. Vividly bringing to life a proud and private people, introducing unforgettable members of their tribe, Affluence Without Abundance tells the story of the collision between the modern global economy and the oldest hunting and gathering society on earth. In rendering an intimate picture of a people coping with radical change, it asks profound questions about what we now think matters, such as work, wealth, equality, contentment, and even time. Not since Elizabeth Marshall's Elizabeth Marshall Thomas's The Harmless People in 1959 has anyone provided a more intimate or insightful account of the Bushmen or what we might learn about ourselves from our shared history as hunter-gatherers. This is 
the book Affluence Without Abundance. It's the disappearing world of the Bushmen and how the Bushmen have accommodated themselves and their society to a harsh environment, the Kalahari Desert, and how that has all been accommodated within the globalizing world. The Bushmen are losing their way of life with settlements that are making them leave their hunter-gathering lifestyle. But this is a look at how they have managed to be a successful society. They are affluent, but without any abundance. And for us living in such a consumerist world today, where we have an absolute abundance, but we might not actually be happy, there's some very, very important lessons that the Bushmen have for us tackling 21st century life. So that's James Sussman, Affluence Without Abundance, and it is published by Bloomsbury. The next book I'm going to look at is by uh, Brothers, and it's one of those books that, if you read, has the power to change your mind. The book is written by Chip and Dan Heath, they're the best-selling authors of Switch and Made to Stick, and it's called The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. We have mentioned this book in the past when we had uh, people from Penguin Random House in. Of course, it is a, it's a random house book published by the imprint Bantam Press. We all have defining moments in our lives, meaningful experiences that stand out in our memory. Many of these moments are the result of accident or luck. But Tripp and Dan Heath, international best-selling authors, ask, why leave our most meaningful, memorable moments to chance when we can create them? The Power of Moments explores why certain brief experiences can jolt, elevate, and change us, and shows how we can learn to create such extraordinary moments in our own life and work. It's filled with remarkable stories and practical insights, and it might be one of those unforgettable reads that has the power to change the moments of the life that you live. What if a teacher could design a lesson that he knew his students would remember 20 years later? What if a doctor or a nurse knew how to orchestrate moments that would bring more comfort to patients? What if you had a better sense of how to create memories that matter for your children? So if those type of memory-making moments appeal to you. Look out for The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. The, the, the book goes through a whole lot of chapters describing from a very research-based perspective how, to define, how we define moments and how to think in moments, how do you think about making def definitive moments? And then looks at the process, the process that a person can follow to get these moments, so that you can have a laugh for yourself and for those around you, where you have memorable moments that you've constructed them, and it has applications not only in your family but for business, for education. For relationships, and uh, this is the, the 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 study that Chip and Dan Heath have made the focus of their new book. So that's the power of moments, published by Bantam Press, and it the book proves we all have the power to transform ordinary experiences into unforgettable ones. The book is available in the shops at the moment, and all you have to do is. Go out, buy it, read it, and then if we use uh, the approach that we've discussed on the radio before in the past, by when I had Ian Mann in the studio, if you get a book like this, you don't just read it and then close it. Read it with a pen and a pencil or a ruler, highlighters in your hand. Make notes at the side. Then when you finish reading the book, go back and look at your summaries. Look at the, the points that you've highlighted. And then use that and think about how you can implement those ideas into your life. That's how you read a book like The Power of Moments. And you, you digest it. You make it part of yourself. And then it's easier to implement all of that into your life. So that's The Power of Moments, Chip and Dan Heath, published by Bantam Press. <coughs> and uh, that's... 
making moments that we remember and then the type of lifestyle which I suppose most of us would love to have. We discussed the book Affluence Without Abundance. That's the bush, the disappearing world of the Bushman by James Sisman. Now, another another uh, book of uh, an extraordinary life is or an extraordinary part an extraordinary period of an extraordinary life is the new book by Scott Kelly called Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Scott Kelly is an astronaut and he also is a twin. He has an identical twin brother and he was selected by NASA to spend a year in space on the International Space Station and after he came back there were a whole lot of tests that were run on his twin brother who stayed on Earth and on him who spent a year in space. Uh, one of the one of one of the many underpinnings of this experience was to see if living in space has long term a long time spent in space has long term effects on the person who's in space. So using the identical twin who spent in space and the other brother was on Earth gave them that opportunity for that level of research. From the NASA astronaut who spent a record-breaking year aboard the International Space Station, what it's like out there and what it's like now back here. Enter Scott Kelly's fascinating world and dare to think of your own a little differently. The veteran of four space flights and the American record holder for the most consecutive days spent in space, Scott Kelly has experienced things very few of us ever have and very few of us ever will. But this is the next best thing, reading his experiences. Kelly describes navigating the extreme challenges of long-term space flight, both the existential and the normal, the devastating effects on the body, the isolation from loved ones and the comforts of Earth, the pressures of close, constant cohabitation, the, catastro- the catastrophic risks of depressurization or colliding with space junk, and still more, and the still more haunting threat of being unable to help should tragedy strike at home. Scott Kelly's humanity, his compassion, humor, and passion shine as he tells us the full story of man's exploration of outer space, from the youthful inspiration that sparked his astounding career. And that's very, very interesting how he became interested in becoming a, 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 a an astronaut. To his belief that Mars could hold the key to our future. That's a little bit more uh, off the beaten track. From a natural-born storyteller, endurance is one of the finest examples of the triumph of the human imagination, the strength of the human will, and the boundless wonder of the galaxy. It's available in the shops at the moment. It's Scott Kelly's Endurance A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. It's very, very, very real and he's got such a such a such a powerful voice and he just shares his experiences with you the reader and you just feel as if you are out there with him you can really get a feel of what the space experience is like so we'll be back with a few more books before i interview with paul mendelson straight after this ad break People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And this is People of the Book. We are moving rapidly to half past 11 when we'll be in interview with uh, Paul Mendelssohn, the author of four books, Crime Thriller Set in Cape Town, the, the latest one, which is available in the shops right now in the trade paperback. Size is Apostle Lodge, published by Constable. But before that, a South African novel, that has been in the shops for a short while, and it's one. It's a really great read. It in no ways is uh, uh, the type of book that you should overlook just because it's local. Actually, it's more of a reason to read it. It's called Bear Ground. It's about Peter Harris. Peter Harris was born in Durban, moved to Johannesburg after qualifying as a lawyer. In the early 1990s, he was seconded from his law firm to the National Peace Accord. Thereafter, he was seconded to head the Monitoring Directorate of South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission for the 1994 election. He currently practices as a lawyer in Johannesburg. I have put a request through 
to interview him, but he's very busy in his day job as a lawyer, <laughs> and he must probably write at night and on the weekends and in his holidays. This is a very powerful novel, and it's very contemporary. The, the, the story could have been plucked from the headlines and the way that the story is told, the narrative push, and the, the type of things that happen are extremely up-to-date. And even though the book was published and came out in October, it's going to feel immediate and the urgency to read it and to, to find out how the, the, the tensions within the plot unravel themselves are going to be with us for a while still. The book, the main character is Max Sinclair, who is a, um, uh, a mining magnet. And the company that he heads, the mining house that he heads, is the last major mining house to do an empowerment deal. And that empowerment deal, 25% of the company is going to be sold to black investors, is one of the the main plots uh, focuses because it's worth billions of rands and there are a lot of people in politics, in the ruling ANC, uh, in black business who want a share of that of the of this empowerment deal. The company's headquarters, the company's board in London, imp- give full permission to Max and Claire to start, you know, to sell off twenty five percent of the company to the best possible consortium of black investors, BEE investors. At the same time. There are a lot of people who want that share for themselves. Then we have Sifiso Lisebi, who is Max Sinclair's youngest protege. He is a geologist for the mining company, and he's the newest member of the board. And Max wants to bring him in on the deal. But there are also lots of politicians who are ready to get their noses dirty at the feeding trough. Then we have a uh, a whistleblower, somebody who works within the government and he picks up irregularities in the construction industry. And when he starts making noises and informing people higher up in government about the irregularities, the collusion, the price setting in the construction industry, which is a very contemporary issue. It's really part of the part of uh, corporate South Africa's uh, dark, you know, dirty secrets that have started coming out in the media in South Africa. He starts to feel that his life is being threatened, and he approaches a friend of his who was a former comrade in the anti-apartheid struggle and is currently a human rights lawyer, uh, was a human rights lawyer, now a lawyer in private practice, Musa Madondo. And Musa Madondo, he now picks up the baton at looking at the, um, looking at the malfeasance and corruption, price collusion within the construction industry. And then all of these different threads start forming a tighter and tighter web. We see how the one percent the one percenters in Johannesburg live, especially those who have become very rich through the the black the black empowerment uh, channel, uh, the type of restaurants they go to, the type of things that they eat. We see the type of things that they order at corporate Business on corporate businesses uh, tab, uh, the type of places they go to for their private meetings, and we know all, we all know these buildings, we we all know these restaurants, we all know these hotels. We just don't know what's happening behind closed doors, and it's a very very powerful novel showing us contemporary South Africa. And then the whole way through the book, there is um, Max and Claire, the 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 mining moguls, personal story. And uh, the end of the book is totally, totally devastating. It's actually worth reading the whole book 
just to see how it all ends. It's Peter Harris's bare ground. Um, in many ways, it's a much tamer critique on South Africa than uh, Charles Poe, uh, sorry, Jacques, Jacques Poe's exposure, uh, expose, expose on um, the Zuma administration in uh, President's Keepers, but it really goes over similar ground and similar antics. That's Bare Ground, a novel by Peter Harris, and it's available in the shops published by Picador Africa. And just to recap the books that we've looked at so far today, Affluence Without Abundance by James Sussman, The Disappearing World of the Bushman, The Power of Moments, While Certain Experiences of Extraordinary Impact by Chip and Dan Heath, Endurance by Scott Kelly, and Peter Harris's Bare Ground. Peter Harris's book is a contemporary South African novel. It's an indictment on the current social business setup in South Africa. Very powerful. It's definitely, definitely should be on people's holiday read lists. And then the books that we've given away, uh, both by Gordon Forbes, it's two of his three installments of his memoirs, A Handful of Summers, and I'll Take the Sunny Side. And we'll be interviewing uh, Paul Mendelssohn, the author of Apostle Lodge. Paul, you on, are you on the line? I am on the line. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being available for an interview. I know you are in Cape Town. It's probably time for research and time for holiday. And uh, I think also now that you're in South Africa and the book's been re- released, also time for publicity. Thank you and welcome to Chai FM. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here this morning. I have been absolutely drawn in, I think I could say I've, I've dissolved my mind in Apostle Lodge over the last few days. It's been a fantastic read. Well done. Uh, and I now want to go back to your backlist and read the first three books in the series because I think if this one is as, in, if the first three are as entertaining as and as informative as this one, it'll be a terrible, terrible uh, waste not to not to throw myself into those as well. For those of our listeners who haven't read you yet, but they're going to, they're going to discover Paul Mendelssohn on High FM today. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I started off uh, my uh, artistic career, and I'm the, the son of, a, of a, uh, an artist and a, and a ballerina, really writing stories at school when I should have been doing other things. Um, and leaving school and, and running a fringe theatre company for two years before moving to the National Theatre in uh, London, on London's South Bank, where uh, I worked first as an assistant director and then was fortunate enough to have a play produced at the age of uh, 21. And from there, I carried on writing for the theatre and uh, a little bit for television as well. And then I moved into uh, the area which one half of my brain uh, is involved with, which is mind sports such as bridge and poker, um, backgammon, uh, looking at uh, expectation and uh, probability, not only in those sort of games, but in relation to markets and, and indeed in terms of the way that we all make decisions every day. And I started writing non-fiction books on those subjects, uh, primarily on uh, on bridge and poker, and I lecture a little bit on those subjects uh, in London as well. But I've always written fiction, and there are some worthy, but I suspect a rather poor attempts at serious uh, literary novels that uh, are littering the drawers of my desk at home. But my great love has always been to write uh, mystery novels, um, thrillers, crime novels. They are the genre that I really enjoy from the likes of the great American author, uh, James Elroy, and uh, perhaps more contemporary Michael Connolly, to the amazingly good uh, Dion Mayer here in South Africa, uh, of whom I'm an enormous fan. And because I've spent so much time coming down to uh, the Cape uh, for over 25 years, I was completely inspired to set uh, my crime novels uh, in Cape Town and throughout the rest of South Africa and indeed up into um, some other Southern African countries and other novels. So that's my, my background as a, as a writer. The main author in your books is Vaughan de Friss, and then he's got his team. Can you introduce us to Vaughan and, well, Vaughan, and his team? 
Yes, I mean, Fawn is a, is a product of the apartheid system in that he started his career um, in the SAPS just at, uh, in the last vestiges of apartheid and saw the, the struggle amongst the, the largely white SAPS as um, a political change overcame the country. Um, and he was married to a woman who I think had a, a much more liberal upbringing and outlook than, than he had, and he has two daughters. And I think very, very slowly over the past uh, 20 to 25 years, he's lost some of his rather old-fashioned, misogynistic uh, and indeed apartheid-era tendencies. And he's beginning very slowly to uh, adapt to the modern age. But he still finds uh, political correctness and uh, the enormous amount of administration and form-filling very frustrating. This is a man who is, um, purely lives now in pursuit of justice. Um, he's separated from his wife and family, but perfectly amicably. He uh, he struggles a little bit to uh, to find the right woman with whom to have a relationship. And um, he, he drinks pretty heavily, but he has all these things pretty much under control. He is just very much focused now on representing the, the victims of the, the crimes which he investigates. Uh, and he's part of a section within the SAPS who investigate the more complex uh, uh, predominantly homicides uh, rather than the uh, the more common and everyday um, crime that uh, people in South Africa uh, have to suffer. Um, and his unit is sometimes referred to as the white crimes unit because a lot of the uh, the crime that he deals with is uh, affecting the, the white people in South Africa. But as I hope readers will discover from my novels, that certainly isn't always the case. And um, I, I think if I were the, the victim or somebody I knew were the victim of a, of a serious crime, Fawn de Vries is the man I would want on my case. He is relentless and determined, and he'll break a few rules to, 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 um, to get to the answers. But he's a man I want on my side, and I, I hope that readers feel that although he's a deeply flawed character, his heart is in the right place, and they root for him and, and follow his adventures in attempting to... Uh, to, to unmask the villains and bring them to justice. You did mention that you've been coming to South Africa for 25 years. It just seems, for us it's a great compliment, but it just seems a bit off the beaten track for a British author to want to set a crime series in South Africa. There has to be more to writing about Cape Town than just you've been coming here for so long. Well, there is. I mean, first of all, Although I do talk about the, the dark underbelly of Cape Town and, and, and there are these, these dark places in every city uh, of the world, um, for me, uh, writing about Cape Town is a love letter. I am in love with this city. This is where I would choose to live if I, if I had the choice, if I didn't have a bond to pay um, and needed to, to earn some uh, British sterling. I, I would live in Cape Town. I have some fantastic wonderful friends here I, I find the people of cape town fantastic and i, I find the whole country wonderful uh, and i used to travel around it uh, much more often but i think the real reason why i'm so attracted to setting my novels in south africa is because of the the febrile background that permeates throughout the whole country the population are afraid of crime they do look for honest people who are not uh, taking backhanders the whole time, people who are not going to be influenced. Vaughan de Vries is a man who, who will not be influenced by uh, the powers around him. He simply wants to get from A to B. And I think that because there is always a political element in these novels, because the, the family with whom I stayed to begin with in Cape Town and in whose house I sit this morning on a, on a telecom line that actually works, um, were very much involved in politics. And so uh, I, I've very much been exposed to some of the politics uh, over the last 25 years here in Cape Town and the amazing events in South Africa. Um, for me, there isn't a country in the world where politics is in people's minds as much as it is every day as here in South Africa. So we, we have an atmosphere of a, of a country, uh, the birth of a new country, full of hope, but also full of problems, overseen by a group within, I think, some genuine and sincere politicians who are trying incredibly hard to do well, but a group of people... As in, again, I, I do emphasize, as in so many countries, a group of people who are only out to line their own pockets, who are hugely corrupt, who are prepared to distort the news um, in, in the most horrendous ways. So it's, it's just such a fertile ground 
for, for setting any novel, be it a crime novel or any novel. But, but for me, it is just the ideal setting. And I, I feel hugely inspired, not only by the beauty of Cape Town and how many friends I have here and how much I love the South African people, but also by the, the problems and the hopes uh, of the country itself. I'm going to ask you a question that's veering off your book, but it's just a general question and sparked by what you've just answered. You obviously are very interested in South Africa, the people and the politics. We are going through quite a dark period at the moment and there's a conference starting next week and the decision of the ANC conference is going to have a huge impact on the country. We're going to have a short ad break now, but after the ad break, your thoughts on South Africa's future from a from a from a, a British perspective. We're always interested in what outsiders have to say about South Africa, but you're not just an outsider. You're actually very strongly connected to our country. You write about us. You visit us every year. After the ad break, your thoughts on our prospects. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is People of the Book. We've got Paul Mendelssohn, an author, British author, who sets his crime thrillers in Cape Town. His latest book, Apostle Lodge, is available in the bookshops at the moment, and he's joining us on the line from Cape Town. I've just asked him for his thoughts on South Africa's prospects. Well, Stephen, you know, I I remain uh, largely optimistic and probably a a little more optimistic than my my South African friends. I I still believe there's a chance for a group of Southern African countries to put together some uh, honest leaders, people who truly love their country and the the people who live in them, and to form a a powerhouse um, down in Southern Africa which can genuinely uh, influence the rest of Africa and show that good governance uh, and a basic democratic system where, where people are involved in a, in a choice of leaders and can react to uh, the policies that they're being offered. Um, but for me, it's not a perfect system that we see operating in uh, Western Europe um, and in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's probably the best one that we have. And I, I think that if we can find those people, I, I remain incredibly um, incredibly optimistic for for Southern Africa. We, we see a tiny incremental change, perhaps in Zimbabwe. As you say, the forthcoming ANC conference is going to be very important in in in, in showing which direction um, South Africa is going to go. I think for me, having uh, been involved with politicians who were fighting against apartheid and looking for free elections here. I think the thing that strikes me the most, and I think it does uh, amongst my friends in the UK and Europe who've, who've followed just as much as we're told up in, uh, in Northern Europe what's been happening in South Africa, I think the, the thing that strikes us most is how the, the men, and it is predominantly men, the men who take power in these countries who are, who are given... Um, who are given the job of leading their countries, having fought to gain control of them, how they have betrayed the very people they claimed they were fighting for. That, to me, is the great tragedy. And I, I so hope that, that people who, who fought in the struggle and people who were children at that time and are now coming into politics, they will, they will look to serve uh, all the residents of South Africa and look to build a strong country. So I think it is a, it's a very worrying time, but I think there's also opportunity now. Uh, change is always slower than one would like. The change that occurred in South Africa here you know, almost 25 years ago was so fast, maybe everybody here still expects things to happen quickly, and it, it can't. But I have seen good things happen from the ANC. You know, um, they weren't a political party. They were a... a a campaigning party, they were a battling, fighting group, and they've turned themselves into politicians, and they've, they've unquestionably achieved a lot. But we just need to see a strong leader and a strong opposition uh, and some genuine uh, political discourse going on. And as I say, I, I want to be optimistic, but in my heart of hearts, I still remain optimistic. So from for my semi-outsider, semi-insider look, I, I still think there's much to be hopeful about. I want to ask you a question about your writing uh, process. It's, it's, it's very positive to hear outsiders being positive about South Africa. But now we're going to jump into your book. 
how do you set about writing your novels? What's the creative process? And you in London, or in, when, you, when you write, how do you research from such a distance and include so many very immediate and urgent South African issues in your novel? Well, well, uh, I mean, thank you very much for the compliments. I, 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 the, the way the novel writing has, has panned out, I tend to think about what I'm going to write. I tend to develop the characters. I know roughly what the plot is going to be and, and how it's going to work. But I think about that for 10 months of the year. And then I come down to South Africa and almost without um, even preparing to do it, I find myself sitting down with my laptop and getting to write. I want these characters suddenly to, to live on the page. They've been stored up in me. There are too many pressures. There are too many distractions in London. I, I have too many family duties, too many responsibilities to, to try and uh, earn money and look after my own family. And down here, some of those fall away from my shoulders, and I, I feel freed up. And, and then within my mind, there's the, the sort of the, the, aside from the creative side of my brain, there's the there's the organized, logical, deductive side of my brain, and I try to use that to create a, uh, a good continuity to my writing, not to leave um, uh, open strands in plot, to try to make it satisfying for readers. But the, the one thing I would say about my creative process, and I've spoken to, to many other crime authors, and, and some are like this and some are completely opposite, is that everything comes from the characters. So if I decide that we're going to A, B, C, D, E, F, I may get as far as D and then realize I can't possibly move to E and F because the characters who are there on the page simply wouldn't act in this way. That isn't what they would do. And then I try to put myself uh, in their place and decide how they would react to these situations and what actions that they would or wouldn't take. And in doing so, I hope that um, the portrayal of those characters is full and that it's an honest portrayal. And I think that if it is, and people can empathize with characters, whether they dislike them or, or, or whether they love them, they will at least feel that these are real voices speaking and, and not just two-dimensional characters that have appeared on the page. So it's a combination of the creative side, and I hope, in terms of plotting and construction, the logical and deductive side of, of my mind. I hear that you, you do have a relationship with your characters. They talk to you, and that personality within your characters helps drive your plot. Do you have anything more you want to add to that relationship with your characters? Not just not just with Vaughan de Friis, but also with your with your villains, because the villain the the mix of villains in Apostle Lodge, I can't say there's one. The you you also get under their skin as well. Well, I certainly do try to. I think, I mean, one of the themes, the early themes of Apostle Lodge is, is to discuss simply what, what evil within a human being is and, and whether it is merely chemical reactions and, and the miswiring of the brain or whether it is a cognitive decision on the part of a human being to act in an evil way knowing that it is evil. Um, and that's a theme that is discussed. I think that uh, a lot of people who commit these awful crimes are obviously mentally ill in, in one way or another. Um, and I think that it's interesting to, to ask the question of whether that is something almost very, that they are born with or whether it is something that is, that is nurtured because of events that have occurred early on in their lives. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have a, a fantastic literary editor of my book. And he says to me all the time, he says, it is so important that your characters have a life beyond the novel and before the novel. If you simply stick a character on a page and they exist in the pages of that novel and there is no backstory and there is no future for them, they are very two-dimensional. And so that is something that I try to do. And in the, the four novels that uh, currently comprise the series, um, there are not always total resolutions to... Um, to the cases. Sometimes there are unanswered questions, and I do promise my readership they, they will get answered eventually, but this is real life. This is policing, and I've spoken to policemen both in the UK, where I used to write many years ago for a television series, 
uh, based around the police force, uh, a branch of the Metropolitan Police, but also here in South Africa, where they say, we, we know or we very, very strongly suspect that somebody is guilty of a crime. We can't prove it yet, and we're going to look to do so in the future. And that is reflected, uh, I hope, in my books also. It's so interesting to hear that you didn't just write these police procedurals in Cape Town, you actually have a background writing screenplays about police police stories in the UK because that comes across your, your, your police work is so assured and it's so realistic that it's there had to be more than just writing police procedurals in Cape Town there's a there's a there's a there's, you, you bring a great depth of understanding of policing to your novels and well thank you very much I, I have a wonderful police advisor here who's um, uh, moving up to being quite a high-ranking policewoman in the SAPS and um, she, she looks at, uh, at my manuscripts and I ask her lots of questions uh, and a lot of what I write is imagined and she says well you know this may not be exactly what happens but it's very very close to what happens here in Cape Town and then often she'll tell me a story that is far more extreme and far more frightening than one that I've imagined and I realize that um that, you know, just as, as I say, with every city, and I don't want to, to frighten your listeners uh, any more than potential tourists to South Africa, um, South African cities have dangerous areas to them, and it is, it, uh, crime is a, is a huge, huge element to life in South Africa. But that is the case in, in many other cities, and um, I, I certainly, I, I'm very fortunate. I live in a, in a nice, comfortable, middle-class area of London, and there are some very nasty crimes are committed around me too. So I'm, I'm just trying to look at uh, both the, the beauty and the joys of South Africa uh, and then also some of its darker characters and, and how Fawn de Vries and his colleagues try to bring them to justice. We're going to have another ad break, but straight after that, as the closing question, it's holiday time and a lot of people are going down to Cape Town. You're already there. I want you just to think during the ad break and then to tell us where can, if someone reads the books and they're really, they're really almost, they, they build a relationship with Vaughan de Fris. Where in Cape Town can you go to experience Vaughan? And the other part of the question is, what are your favorite places to tour in Cape Town? Because you keep coming back. So you have to have favorites. And if they little known secrets, <laughs> maybe we can share one or two of them with our listeners so we can enrich their Cape Town holiday at the end of this year. So those, those, um, tourist sites coming straight after this ad break. <laughs> Relevant and up-to-date. This is 101.9 High FM. Recently on the Morning Mayhem. Uh, just a heads up. Christmas Day, we will be playing you Boney M. <laughs> on the Morning Mayhem. I'm not coming. <laughs> that city, and so importantly, is... Israel's capital. Luke and Day says this is not a Trump speech. It's too presidential. <laughs> Catch the morning mayhem for the best start to your day. The Dummy's Guide to Streaming High FM on the Internet. Step 1. Visit www.highfm.com. Step 2. Click Listen Live. Step 3. Select the player you installed on your PC. Step 4. Enjoy High FM all day long. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. we in conversation with Paul Mendelssohn, the author of four crime thrillers set in Cape Town, The History of Blood, The Serpentine Road, The First Rule of Survival, and the latest one, Apostle Lodge. I started on the fourth one, but I, I want to go back to the first three because um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Paul, I've asked you, where in Cape Town can someone experience... Paul, uh, Vaughan de Frisse's existence in Cape Town, and what are your favourite spots in Cape Town? Well, Vaughan very much occupies uh, a space in the, the city bowl. He's probably a street or two away from uh, Long Street, and he certainly spends a bit of time uh, queuing for, for very, very strong coffee and in quantity um, uh, in and around uh, the Long Street area. He has uh, meetings there, and in Apostle Lodge, he he spends a bit of time in uh, uh, in a street uh, uh, above uh, Kemp's Bay, uh, high up uh, underneath the Twelve Apostles, and that uh, building, which is uh, uh, w- was uh, designed by a German architect in the 
the 1970s is a is a dark and strange monolithic building, a, a character almost in its own right with uh, within the novel. But he looks down on Camps Bay and. Um, Rather like last night in Cape Town, we had a very, very hot night indeed. I don't think it fell below 30 degrees, and uh, Vaughan is suffering this uh, this climate and uh, the drought and the water restrictions we have here down now during the course of, uh, of this novel. And then he sets out on the R62, which is a fantastically beautiful scenic road that runs parallel to the M2. So I would say that if you're uh, coming down to the Cape and you're planning to drive to Hermanus or all the way along the south coast to to Flettenberg Bay, then just take a little bit longer. Maybe don't take the N2, maybe um, kick on to the R62 and visit some of the routes that uh, Vaughan eventually visits and another character uh, in the novel, uh, Mike Solarin, um, because it's a fantastic route. And for myself, I, I'm afraid I, I'm really very much a local. I just come to live here. I love Kirsten Bosch Botanical Gardens and Constantia Neck and those southern suburbs that are so green and lush. And I'm always very happy to go and sit in Newlands Cricket Ground. I look forward to going to see it when the test match is on and South Africa are playing, but also just to go and sit and look up at Devil's Peak and look up at the mountain. But I suppose the one tip I would give to, to people visiting Cape Town, and it may be that your listeners know the city just as well, if not better than I do, is try to get up and do all those fantastic tourist attractions from, from the cable car to Cape Point just at the crack of dawn. Go as early as you can. There's something amazing about the morning light here. And in London, I get up late and I stay up until the early hours of the morning. And in Cape Town, I get up early and I go to bed early because... Oh, early morning in Cape Town is quite beautiful. And uh, friends who come to stay with me and visit me from London, I say, get in your car, get on your motorbike, go to Cape Point, get there. Crack of dawn, it's quiet, the air is fresh. The, it, it, it's, it's just stunning. So just come down and enjoy the natural beauty uh, of Cape Town and, and try and make it at those, those magic light times of dawn and dusk. Thank you, thank you. We've got like time for one, one word. Are you working on the next The Friss novel while you're in Cape Town? I'm working in my head, but the next one's set in the UK, but Vaughan is coming back. Okay, okay. Well, we look forward to whatever whatever you do right. Um, I'm a fan, and I hope that uh, High FM listeners will go out and they will give your books a chance. Um, Apostle Lodge is available in the shops. At the, even though it's part of a series, it can be read as a standalone. Thank you so much for your time, and I just hope that people now are aware of Paul Mendelssohn as a, as a writer and that your books go from strength to strength in South Africa. Thank you. Stephen, thank you so much. And to everybody out there, next week I hope to have my highlights of the year, my reading highlights of the year as the one-hour show. And until then, good Shabbos and keep reading.